the SF Music Tech Summit, recorded live by Media One Audio Visual. To learn more about us, visit us online at MediaOneAudio.com. Zisk for inviting me to come to the panels um, and speak, um, even though I tend to cause some issues that people talk about for a long time afterwards, but I do think that that's the whole point of a conference. Um, it's a debate. So I want to make one thing clear. Um, today I've asked uh, the organizers here to have two microphones available in the audience because I don't want to sit here and talk about music technology, you know, and then ask a bunch of experts uh, in their particular fields to just talk about music technology at you. I, I want to make this an actual open and guess what, interactive panel so that we can um, um, take questions from the floor as well as share what we're thinking and uh, what we get up to. So I'm, 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 I'm going to keep this, pretty, this preamble pretty short. I'll get into um, some issues that some of you may have read in the post that I uh, threw up there on Friday. I, I try and always preempt the... Oh, you like it? Yeah. Oh, good. I'll send you the hate mail. You can answer it. <laughs> um, the, um, yeah, the post is always um, uh, just to set up the way I kind of think about these things. And um, I have to praise David Ewald and uh, Roy Christopher here particularly. They're very good friends of mine, and we've been... Uh, doing lunches when we can do face-to-face, -face, and we've been uh, sharing an email, a lot of big ideas. So it's not like we just came up with this um, for this panel. This is something we think and talk about all the time. And this is just a great opportunity to share. So I'm going to have the panelists uh, introduce themselves. Go. Uh, is my distance from the mic proper? Uh, I'm Roy Christopher from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm a writer, technology guy, but I'm here mainly as a music fan, so that's going to be my role here. My name is Corey Dennis. I'm the Vice President of Digital Marketing and Social Media at Tag Strategic. I've got some awesome clients. I do social media stuff for Sound Exchange, new client Toolshed, working with some cool bands over there, Peggy Sue and some Yep Rock artists, Polyvinyl. And I used to work a long time ago at What Are Records and IOTA. I'm David Ewald. I'm the creative director at Uncork Studios, and we're a company that builds mobile and location-based products. I'm coming at this more from kind of the product design aspect of technology. My name is Alex. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called SoundCloud. Um, and before that, I was a sound designer, and I'm a massive geek for anything sound or tech-wise. I'm Jesse Von Doom. I uh, am the co-executive director of an organization called Cash Music. We're a nonprofit that works with artists to build free and open source tools to do a lot of the things that you already know about in music tech. Great, thanks. And uh, thanks to everyone for being able to make it. I'm, uh, I'm really glad I was able to pull a, what I think for you guys, a great panel. Um, so let's get right into this. First of all, I'm not interested in picking fights with uh, companies um, you know, that stream music. That's not what this is about. Um, really what, what it's about for me is trying to get to the bottom of why we've reached uh, uh, what I've been sharing with these guys. I, I wrote down as a, an idea I, I'd been thinking about was, is this just uh, uh, the, the, the sort of mechanics of consensus where if you're going to start some kind of music streaming service, there's only a couple of things you can really do. It usually requires a VC, and then it's always going to require access to content that you have to pay for. And that seems to be the model. And then one hopes that it works out. 
And then it, it, it brought us to uh, the way Dave and I, when we talk at lunch here a lot uh, in, in our world, which is, in my world, it's advertising and branding now beyond my professional music life. Um, I'm a, an interactive director and um, I always have to be talking to uh, brands and we're talking about advertising and we're talking about products, right? But um, when they're asking for like iPad apps or any sort of technology, if it's a website, interactive, interactive, interactive is always the word. Make someone do something and they will like my brand or something. Well, you know, we have a set of questions for that um, that I think Dave would share too. But what it gets down to and what I want to try and debate today, and that's why I would like questions from the audience also, is... If you're thinking of doing something in the music space, then there's a couple of things that have to be brought up quickly, I think. And one of them is, what problem are you solving? So, you know, what problem do any of these music streaming services actually fix? So what was the question that was asked in the uh, beginning? And then you have to say, who are you serving? Are you serving music fans? Are you serving advertisers? Are you serving musicians? Or are you serving yourselves and your VCs? And these, these are important questions because it might actually just get something going inside of these companies where they start thinking about a different way and who they're serving, a different way to deliver, deliver that. So I want to throw out a question um, just to the panel here briefly. It's like, what do we think about the, the, that sort of mechanics of consensus that everything must be this way? And anyone can answer. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll dive into it. <clears throat> I think that that's, you're right, and that that is, that is how, it, how it looks like today. Um, a lot of things that are coming out are very, very similar in terms of you know, what the product looks like, what the structures behind them are. And I think you know, it is, in some ways, a lack of, of disruption happening today, and sort of thus this panel. Um, I think for me, um, the interesting way of really looking about that is sort of taking a step back and saying, like, what is it that we're interested in here? Like, I think in general, we're all interested in innovation happening. Um, disruption in itself is not necessarily something, you know, great. Um, it's a way of achieving innovation. And innovation is something that we're all interested in. We've seen um, a space where in some ways you could say, like, a lot of things have changed. But actually, there's not that much that has changed over the last 15 years. A lot of companies today are still struggling with one simple problem, which is conceptually very easy. It's like you want a button that says play, and you press it, and you listen to a song. That's a problem we've been trying to figure out you know, as companies for, uh, for like 15 years. Um, and <clears throat> I think lack of disruption in that, that space is that there's just so big executional challenges for a lot of these companies. I mean, the fact that we've been struggling 15 years to try and solve that conceptually very, very simple product is, is due to the fact that there is just enormous um, executional challenges involved in that. And I think for anybody wanting to build something innovative um, there, I think you, you need to recognize how, how painful it is to disrupt an industry but you also need to do things dramatically different than people are doing it today. Because if you're just doing it the same way, it's probably not going to be disruptive. That's very much on sort of the, the press the button, uh, press the play button, listen to a song side. I think on another side, the flip side of innovation actually doesn't require any disruption per se. And that's all around opening up 
sort of new markets, opening up a new space, creating something that didn't exist before, that isn't relying on disrupting an existing industry. And for me, that's all happening on the creator side. Um, that's about you know the technologies and the world around us having changed so much that it becomes a lot easier for anybody to be involved in creating sound, creating music, and building companies that actually um, enable that innovation, that live off of that innovation. I think that there's a massive potential there, probably an even bigger potential to build interesting things without even actually having to disrupt an industry. Um, so just one, one thing, if, if you've come to this panel thinking like, I'm gonna build a music tech company and like I want to build something very innovative, uh, maybe I'll do that by, uh, by disrupting something, I would sort of ask those two questions like one, do I want to build something completely innovative that's on sort of the creator side, on creating a new world, creating a new, new market, or do I want to disrupt the existing industry to create something that hasn't existed before? Uh, but I would encourage everybody to think big. No, I, I think that's a really, really great statement. It just reminded me of something I didn't say when I introduced myself. Is uh, I'm, a, I'm an, um, a lecturer at the University of Oregon, so I, I get to be in front of a lot of young people, and we talk about this space a lot. And um, by the way, anyone who's thinking of starting a music service can welcome to come to my class and meet them and talk to them and ask them questions about what they do and don't do. I'll get into that in a minute. But one thing I, I do talk a lot about in class is you can't learn digital marketing. And I don't believe you can learn digital delivery of things. Because what, when we talk about disruption, and particularly when I talk about disruption, I'm talking about the internet that disrupted society and culture on many levels and destroyed a lot of businesses. But what I teach the kids is you've got to go out there and create new markets. So really what we're discussing today as well is like, what are those new markets? What do they look like? What, you know, does it always have to be this Venn diagram of content on one side? VCs on the other and in the middle a crushed little company trying to make it on content that I barely get paid for. They're not funny, you know. <laughs> I'll let you laugh. Um, so let's go back to uh, then, uh, I want to throw this out to the panel. Um, who are you serving? Who are these companies serving? Well, I wanted to speak to you. You were talking about the push, kind of pushing back to passivity. Go. And the, the, this whole interactive idea and the Microphone. fact that we're... Oh, can you not hear me? Microphone. Um, the fact that you're, we're running into this like social media interactive fatigue where people don't necessarily want to interact with everything or they don't necessarily want to be able to do all these things because everyone's not a creator. So I just wanted to mention that when you said that about passivity. Well, and that's, uh, I think that's a topic that Dave and I and uh, at the lunches that he's been referencing we've talked about and I, I've called it trust erosion uh, that I think we have to think about in the context of all these services and all the music. and. I mean, the industry itself, and, and I'll use myself as an example, where I had, I had vinyl when I was a kid, and then I switched over to tapes, and then I switched over to CDs, and I still have CDs sitting in a shop in my house, uh, collecting dust and, and whatever they're doing. Uh, I then switched over to MP3s, as everybody did. Uh, now I have no more hard drive space, um, and, because, and it doesn't matter because now everything is a cloud service. Uh, and at some point, for myself anyway, I, I, don't, I don't trust as much as I used to. And, and there's, it, it feels like the same walls are being built up over time, uh, only to you know, all of a sudden say, oh, all of this that you've done is for naught now. Uh, and, and I think that that's a context that we, we need to consider in, in terms of audience. And, and I think that's a, 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 it's a multi-sided uh, aspect. So as an artist, David, uh, Dave, <laughs> Dave, 
Only my uh, mother calls me yes, David. Yes, I, I call him David. We're, we're good friends. Um, you know, you, I, I think you have an erosion of trust as well for, for ironically, advertising. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's several aspects to that that, that need to be considered. I'd like to no. touch no. briefly on yeah, the social please. media aspect yeah. of it. Um, so there's an, an article that recently came out on the Social Media Collective. It's a, uh, a blog that is run by some Harvard scientists. Um, socialmediacollective.com, I think. I am no part of it. I just like it. Um, and one of the new writers put up a post recently about participatory culture, specifically artists. She sampled British artists, so Lloyd Cole was on there. Kind of neat, because I built his first message board years, like 15 years ago. And so 15 years later, he's talking about participatory culture online and how it's affected him. And there's about six artists there. And you know, the bottom line is, is the message that one that a that a creator must participate in participatory culture is the is uh, an incorrect message that it can actually interrupt the process of creativity. That for a specific example, Twitter might not be for all artists. It's probably this is not a marketing panel, but Twitter might be better for the kind of artist that likes to go to the merch table after a show. Right, so just because we have some dis some seemingly disruptive solutions around new marketing of music now that there's more music available, doesn't mean that these solutions work for all people, um, and that the disruption may happen on the creative side. That participatory culture, I highly recommend this essay on that blog, actually is showing to have a negative effect on artists who are very participatory with their fans. They, that some of these artists that were surveyed want to participate less, want to create less. So disruption works in many different ways. I think and I'm a marketer, I, I, by the way. I, I use social media to market. I think we, um, you know, we're talking about a few different perspectives, and I'm glad you brought up the artist perspective specifically, because you know, we talk about 15 years of, of innovation and not much changed, but the biggest thing I can think of just off the top of my head is that artists can't pay their rent anymore. And that is a pretty big disruption, and it's not necessarily a good one. Um, I think that as we're looking at this, I think uh, all these issues that Dave brought up are fascinating from a few different perspectives. There's the perspectives of the companies involved, there are the perspectives of technological innovators, but there's also the perspective of, of the artists themselves, the people that, that are creating the content, if you want to call it that, I guess. Um, you know, I think it's important for us to, to look at the issues of um, how many artists you think trust your service as you go and create a new service. Why are they going to trust your service? Why are they going to care about your service? Yeah. It, it's, it's an important piece, and I think it's one that it speaks to the social aspect because it, it isn't for everybody, nor is every service for everybody. But I think that we need to take that perspective I, firmly. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, 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 I want to keep going on that one a second. But first of all, I want to remind you guys here that there are microphones available for any questions you may have, you know, let's keep this going. But um, again, I'm not here to name names about the, 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 the companies that talk about users and content, which is really something I'm trying to avoid using. You know, people are people. They're not users. And music fans particularly are people who get very emotional about music. But, and so I was looking online at one of the streaming services that touts it has 11 million songs everywhere, anytime never pay for music again. So let's think about creators, right? If you never have to pay for music again, there won't be any music, right? 
So you better get back to your VCs and dream up the next thing. So what about creators? Um, the reason I, I've asked uh, Alex and, and Jesse here today, they're trying to do something that allows creators to keep creating and get it up there. Because going back to my advertising and brand world, uh, something I remind my clients is, look, there are more people creating videos on YouTube and uploading them every day than give a damn about your brand. I can guarantee you that. So, you know, we can use the old old uh, accolade of, of um, um, the, 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 the only thing that's scarce on the internet is attention. So how do we get attention for your brand? Must it always be interactive? Well, how about it could be actually creators creating and then giving them access to that, and then the creators who gave access to that control whether they want to be paid for it or not, but it's actually their, you know, their idea, not um, some technologist's idea. I, I think that... Yep. Sorry, Go I, ahead, I think, and then, then we'll take a question. Yeah, I th think one... One fundamental thing when when talking about creators and, and, and about these different topics that that we need to really keep in mind is that the concept of a creator is very different today than it was 15 years ago. Um, there's so many more people actually creating stuff today at various various degrees. It doesn't mean that you know that's the only thing you're doing. I mean, everybody here who post tweets, you're creating stuff. Um, the whole web is a fantastic creation of all the stuff that we've together created. Um, so we, we can't really sort of look at, um, look at the world and say, well, you know, everybody who's creating music um, will be able to pay their rent from that. And I'm not... Oh, sorry? I don't think they should, actually. No, exactly. I'm really happy when people fail. That's fine. It's yeah, and, 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 and there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. That doesn't mean that um, you know, the people that are doing it professionally shouldn't be able to do it. I think they have a bigger chance of being able to do that today than before because there's more open environments. They are able to interact directly with their fans. They're able to take control over monetization options and strategies around that. But I really think it's a fun, fundamental thing that we have to keep in mind that a creator today is something very different from, from before. I, I, like to, I like to look at you know, how people treat photos a lot. And there it's like, you know, we're all photographers. We're all telling stories every day through our phones, you know, taking pictures, sharing that. <clears throat> doesn't mean that we're all going to be in the National Geographic because of it. Um, it doesn't mean that the pictures in the National Geographic are worse today than they were you know, 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, there are, there's, there's, there's a certain segment of people that will be creating things professionally all the time. Some of them will be very successful at it. Um, but what's really exciting now is this thing that you know, the concept of a creator is so much broader that anybody can actually be involved in it. And I think as a service catering to creators, I mean, you have to think about you know, what, what segment there it actually right. is. And for, for people who are doing it professionally and have the chance of, of monetizing it, about monetizing access to it, monetizing you know, shows, whatever it is, I think you know, we're on the verge of having a lot better tools for that sure. as well, Absolutely. partly through what you guys are doing. So, um, you want to mind introducing yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Charles Che, uh, Yummy Melon Software, uh, focusing on mobile apps development and so forth. But I, I guess I, uh, you know, I read your essay and uh, one that I, I found to be uh, very much in agreement with. Uh, but Thanks. I'd like to ask the panel as a, as a, a side effect of that is, is What's the level of enthusiasm for self-distribution, for providing services and support for that? Because it seems like with all of the music 
streaming services right now, I mean, they really are focused on licensing content and basically repackaging or redistributing that. But as opposed to actually going and engaging and arguably competing against existing labels, being able to do representation at for, for creatives, is that something that you or do you feel like, you know, the industry as a whole it has any enthusiasm for or is just more focused on tools and trying to stray away from that? There's a number of platforms that enable publi publishing your own music and distributing it on your own. Reverb Nation comes to mind off the top of my head, and I know that there are some competitors to Reverb Nation as well. You know, or artists, individual artists um, sometimes go to uh, TuneCore or these, or Reap and Sow, where I used to work, and these other distributors that have come up with varying models to help the artist either with a fee or without. Um, but it's interesting that you asked that because just to digress for half a second, before we walked in here, I chimed in in the green room and said, you know, it's interesting. None of the tech journals ever covered distribution in 2005 when we were when a lot of us at distrib distribution companies, maybe 10 people at each, were reconfiguring the Dewey Decimal System essentially to encode music off of CDs. It was this big disruption. It was the moving from music. You know, music has moved from format to format to format. And in 2003 to 2006, and a little bit before that, it moved from the, the CD format to this digital format. And um, so when you ask about distribution, I can personally consider that the first major disruption in digital music was encoding of music from CD. And we got tapes in the mail at IOTA. It was a mess. So um, anyway, so to answer your question, there aren't that many options for an unknown artist, in my opinion, who has just their music and wants to distribute it through Reverb Nation. Uh -huh. They can distribute it, but they might not make any money. I kind of want to disagree. Um, okay. It's not about the money, right? Let, let's keep the money off the table for a minute because okay. we're not here to try and help uh, me get more than seven cents in royalty checks. It's, <laughs> it's about... Um, it's, what it's about is a zero barrier to entry model. So to answer your question, anybody can, can put music up on the web and it's one massive distribution site, right? But um, like we can go back to Alex and Jesse here. They're actually creating tools. If you think about SoundCloud... Um, if I ever get more than one minute in my life back and I want to make some music, um, and, and understanding that my royalty payments are in the dumper anyway, right? I'd rather give it away for free and create that audience that way. And I would use SoundCloud to do it. And, and, and it has the tools for me to upload and write descriptions and then people can tag within the, the stream as it goes, like, wow, that's a great piece of baseline or something, right? It, 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 you know, that kind of interaction and creation and sharing is more interesting to me than what I call these passive listening devices like uh, internet radio. You know, uh, you know, if you don't have a filter, if you don't have somebody who's actually pointing you to great stuff, but you, you, you have buttons and widgets and things you can play with to try and find the great stuff, it, it, it's all out there on the web anyway. You don't need these services. But I'll let Alex and Jesse, or actually Chris, Roy. But, but you're asking about the, the enthusiasm for that kind of thing yeah. from the companies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's clearly a lack of that because the companies are all serving similarity and serving the same stuff we already have. Like, that's... You can't make money. 
Right. You can't make there. It's just so. In the last few years, have shown that it's very difficult to make money off from working only independent artists. It's a sad, disturbing truth that I had to come to terms with in my own career. Well, we're back to the money thing. <laughs> we can't Sorry. get away from that. You know right? what? Um, it's very disruptive. Um, this if we money thing. Gently get back to distribution. <laughs> no, but we but need money. I think like one of the um, to, to varying different degrees, though, don't we? I mean, it depends. You can sacrifice some money, and I'm not just going to say like everyone should, but you don't have to get a big salary either. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, especially when when artists aren't. I mean, I think that the service is is important. I think that serving the art and serving the culture is also important as well. So yeah. we have to find ways to enable that, and, and that goes hand in hand with the businesses that are making money off of it. I think we need to both serve the art and the business around the art. Mm -hmm. So two, two quick thoughts on distribution. I mean, one uh, old way of distribution was I have this here, I'm going to push it out in these different channels. So I would engage a distributor to take that and sort of place it in a lot of different places. Um, I think what people like about SoundCloud is you, can, you put it in one place and then widgets and stuff travel all around the web. So distribution is happen, happening automatically for you. I think another point there which is interesting is how we've built it up as a platform. We have over 210 applications built all around the platform, which means that as soon as you put it up, if that's what you want, you have instant distribution to all of these different applications. So your content is immediately everywhere. If you decide to pull it down, it's gone from everywhere as well. So it's a different mode of distribution. So I think that's also something which leverages the architecture of the web and does distribution in, in a somewhat uh, more efficient way. And back to your point of if, is, there, is there enthusiasm about thinking about distribution? I'm, I'm going to sort of look at it from the, from the artist perspective. Like, are they enthusiastic about distributing stuff? Um, I hope that's what, what you were, were thinking about. We've seen that um, people aren't that enthusiastic about the planning of it. People don't want to like, you know, they've made a track. They don't want to like plan how they're going to distribute it to all of these different things. But what happens is that as soon as somebody puts something up and they get a reaction from somebody, then all of a sudden they become very enthusiastic about it. Like you're not very enthusiastic about the, the planning, the work that goes into it. But if, if the web sort of brings that magic to you and you get sort of a, a reaction and people engaging on it, then that's highly, highly addictive. I know for myself as well, the first thing I check when I open SoundCloud is like, what happened on my tracks? You know, did anybody? <laughs> that way, I actually hear the opposite from uh, most artists who use SoundCloud. They they like the ability to upload, to store, to track, to see. That's the first thing that's commented. It's almost it's the it's sort of the foundation of the things they create. They they store it there and they see that as the home for right. all the things they've built. So yeah. that I think you might be selling yourself a little short. I guess is a home. Um, we have a question from the audience. You want to introduce yourself? Um, very briefly, my name is uh, Shannon Clark. I'm an entrepreneur and consultant. Okay. Um, I was curious, I, I'm wondering if, if maybe disruption is happening someplace that isn't calling itself the music industry. You know, I, I think there's some really interesting things happening in sort of generative sound inside of games and some other things that are that appear to the someone hearing playing a game like music, but it's not thought of and dealt with in some of the same ways as the traditional music industry or traditional tracks or even traditional artists. I agree. I think so too. I think <laughs> I think that that is it goes to your point about creators are and, and it's they're taking different shapes, right? Like so that that's being a creator. And I think one of the things that you talked about was the executional challenges that and, and those aren't just technical. I think there's a real big one that is uh, 
ownership of, of rights, which gets very quickly back to the money that we're not going to talk about. But um, I think that's a huge hurdle, and I think that's part of what uh, you know you, you created. I th I'm guessing like you opened up an API, you said create applications on top of SoundCloud to do all the things that you're talking about, and that's partially because there's not the legal hurdle that you have to get over. So I think that yes to there's there's different new things that are happening that are making people creators and they can own that creation and they can distribute it however they want maybe it's soundcloud maybe it's just the internet um, but i do think it's it's shifting and i think that that's mm -hmm. that's definitely a space that's that's uh, really interesting do yeah. we have proof that there's more art being created now than there was during the elizabethan era for example do yes. we really know that yes yes yeah mm -hmm. because so, if i recall my analytics. English degree, Emily Dickinson wrote poetry, never shared it with a person, and stuffed it under her floorboards, yet she's part of the Western canon. And I've actually blogged about that. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't see, I just want to see maybe some, yes, I know the internet has exposed art, but can you really tell me that artists haven't been creating for all time in their own homes? I, I, I just, I, what, I, what I'm asking is, are we building more tools for artists and not really paying attention to the kind of art or means that they need. I mean, we're building all these tools, but um, I don't know that more art is, a res is actually the result. It's just that we can all see it now. Mm -hmm. I think just a quick, quick connection between, between those two more things. More people, more art. I get that part. <laughs> like innovation happening in different, space, in different places and more creation than ever before. I think like... Uh, just a number that I really, or a metric that I really like is, um, I love the company Smule, which you probably know. Um, the absolutely fantastic application IMT Pen um, that came out. So iTunes has about 10 million tracks. They report a little bit differently, but they have about 10 million tracks. That's all of the music we made in 80, 80 years. That's a collective bulk of all of our music. So IMT Pen by Smule, users of that one single iPhone application created over 30 million tracks in six months. So you go from we have 10 million to 30 million in six months. So that's what happens when you know the, the barrier to, to creating something is so low, and sort of the incentive to share it is, is really high. You get people just sporadically creating stuff all the time. And it may not be the musical equivalent of of Shakespeare, um, every, every one of these tracks. I think we can say it's not, safely. Yeah. But, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That speaks to your different kinds of creators. But getting people involved in that feeling of creating something, I made this piece of music and I shared it with somebody else, that's a starting point for somebody to get interested in creating. If the song is bad? That's well, fine, that's a starting that's, point. The first song I made was bad. terrible. Actually, the last song I made was terrible yeah. as well. But, um, <laughs> but, but it's a starting point. So, so I, um, I just worry about the false I hope join of that person band. that puts up their song. <laughs> and the false band. hope that the tool gives them that putting up their song now enables them, now that they have Facebook, Twitter, and the, pla and the place to put up their song, and their universal this, that, and the other, that there's then this concept that now that it's easier to create, which I disagree with, I think artists have always been creative, but uh, creating, but now that it's easier to put it out there, that suddenly these reactions, this participatory culture is growing a new phenomenon. And, and even though I work well deep inside of it, I, I just don't see evidence that there's more art now in general than there ever was before, just that we know it's there. Okay. Um, 
I don't want to go down rat holes on this panel. Sorry. Um, it's very I think we, uh, yeah, Hang on. We, we have a few people. Uh, there are a few people who want to ask questions to, which is always interesting. So, But I, and I want to kind of jump into R R Roy and I's world of, of reading and writing and, and paraphrase something. So I remember seeing Claire Shirky down at South by Southwest on a, you know, up there with... Um, the executives from the New York Times and book publishers and everyone was lamenting the end of everything because of the internet. And um, Clay brought up one slide, which I thought was awesome. It just said, the, in the internet is the largest group of people who care about reading and writing ever assembled in history. Now, just paraphrase that into the internet is the largest group of people who care about creating and, and uploading music in history, right? It, and then it can be any art form, right? You can dissemble it from there. You had a point? Oh, I said and consuming it. Oh, and consuming it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So let's quickly go to questions. Uh, yeah, my name is Michael, and I'm an independent artist manager, and I run their... Sorry. Oh, there you are. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> and I also run their, uh, their record label as well. Uh, it's also kind of a, a comment, but uh, basically I feel completely overwhelmed by the amount of technology and sites coming out right now, and I'm just curious in your opinions, how do you feel that you know, one like myself navigates through all this because I can spend all day long talking and researching these different websites and applications and innovators, and it becomes very frustrating for me at a point. I feel very lucky that I have a strong tech guy who, who also handles our content, but for the average, you know, manager now, as independent music grows and grows and grows, I feel like this is a phenomenon that's just almost, I mean, you know, inconceivable for me. You know, people felt that way 100 years ago as well. Um, technology isn't, you know, something that you control, like we control our lawn. Sometimes you will, sometimes you won't. There's no, like, easy answer to how to manage, you know, all the stuff that's coming out. Whether it be, you know, different sites, different labels, or just gadgets that we have to carry around all the time. There is one really interesting thing, you know, is that in Dave's um, essay that he posted the other day, he talked about the lack of a big idea. And I really, truly believe that some of the big idea is actually simplicity. Um, it, it's not fancy, it's not exciting, but I think it really is vital to us, especially going forward. Um, just as a whatever, I, most of my friends and most of the people I, I work with and speak with professionally are, are actually musicians, not, not tech folks. Um, and and the, the constant frustration is the fact that, you know, I know I want to do something, but I don't know how to do it. And sometimes those things are really, really basic things. I don't know how to start writing on the internet, for example. And you can say Tumblr, you can say whatever. It's still a barrier, and it's still not simple enough. And I think that's, right. that's the next big thing. And it will speak to your point, I think, is that as things become simpler, and if you need proof of this idea, just look at a company called Apple. Um, you know, I only have one thing of theirs, but it works just like a champ, and it's simple as hell. And I think that's going to be half what we have to serve artists more and more, is finding that simplicity in this, in yeah. this tech I, I think also, to your point, that, that was a good question, but it, it came back to what we were talking a little bit about earlier, about participatory culture. And, you know, uh, at lunch yesterday, David and I were chatting with, uh, um, actually, Bruce from Music Think Tank, and um, about different ideas in, in music delivery again. But it's like, look, when I started Gang of Four, there was a couple of reasons for starting Gang of Four. It's like, we all wanted to have a band, but we also knew we would end up meeting girls and maybe get something to eat. Um, you know, it's like, I did not want to think about social media or building an ad inside a, a container that has my music that I can then deliver on a widget across the web. I wanted to go out and play music. So, you know, I think it's okay to back off, and I like the idea of simplicity. 
Um, I think that's part of what you were talking about earlier about how musicians, I don't remember the exact story, but how it, it's disruptive to a fault. So it gets in the way of, of the making music. Yeah, yes. our, the our, other our, end of participatory culture. Many yeah. times I've been to, this is my probably my eighth SF music tech out of nine, and many times in these rooms we've talked about um, participatory culture, and very rarely do we listen to the artists who tell us they don't like it. Yeah, well, we can get into that. But, uh, there's a couple more questions in the room still. Uh, you wanted to ask? I had a comment about a topic that's asked. Okay, you sure? A big moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just uh, maybe back in the rabbit hole of um, of uh, uh, whether or not there are more artists creating, whether or not there's an audience for it, and so forth. So I'm um, I'm like Alex, someone who makes awful tracks um, to to put up on SoundCloud and so forth. And I I think the the confluence of software and tools available to me that make possible for me to make music where it would have required so much more effort that my busy life wouldn't have allowed it before. That and the tools to know that someone could listen to it um, compels me to, to do things that I wouldn't have otherwise done. It's not that I wouldn't have been capable, I just wouldn't have. Uh, now who is listening to it? Very few people. But um, who those people are are actually people who I know. Um, and I, I don't have dreams of being the audio Shakespeare, but uh, much like most of the, you know, if we take the written word <clears throat> as, a, as a medium instead of music, uh, and, and what Twitter's done in making, making everyone a very short-form publisher, most of the tweets that come through in my tweet stream are to the general population crap. And they wouldn't want to see it, and they wouldn't care, and they wouldn't care that Alex is on a panel right now, or, you know, they, um, sorry to pick on you. Uh, <laughs> but, but I do, because I know him, and I have that connection. And so, similarly, when people, you know, the few people who do listen to the things that I make and comment on it and so forth do that, it's, it's because they know me. And that really starts to reshape, you know, what the artist-to-art-consumer relationship looks like, because it's kind of everyone to everyone. Our egos as creators, this is not something new. This is something that, you know, Sigmund Freud talked about a long time ago. I have all in, the, in, in these notes. I'm a big history buff, and I'm sorry, but I'm just going to spend just a second on um, the Elizabethan era because I think it's actually one of the best examples of a leader who supported an artistic movement. She stayed in power for the, she's the longest leading monarch in England's history. And during that time, we know of a lot of art that became part of the canon that, was, that came out during that era. And I spent some time over the last week looking at the stage construction of the Shakespearean stage. I think I'm being misunderstood. I'm not saying that, that artists are striving to be the next Shakespeare and create works that will create works that will create works. That happens naturally. What I am suggesting is that the tools that were created during that era don't exist yet today, and that was hundreds of years ago. We haven't digitized them. So when you look at the Shakespearean stage, I'm, I'm going on the idea that a lot of you know that it was round. Um, you know, the theater in the round came about, but that also all economic classes in England were able to attend the theater. Even where they sat was decided upon how much money they made, that it was all a tiered performance that was paid for. Artists were paid, the writer was paid, um, and it was commerce. 
Um, now, of course, our government is completely different, but um, I think, you know, if you take, I've taken a lot of time looking at creative movements between World War II and the 1970s, um, the disco era between World War II and 1970. We had a creative boom in our country, in our very young country. It's one of our only creative booms, and it went from post-war prohibition stuff and Gatsby-esque stuff over to disco in the 70s, and Disco. went down. Um, and so did it go down in public only or did it go down in subcultures? It went I, down because I there care were a multiple whole lot about the labels. creation that happened after disco. It yeah. went down because <laughs> I have to say it right now. <laughs> listen, it went down because during disco there were a lot listen, I'm sorry, but it's all in this book. During dis disco, there were a lot of labels. By the end of disco there were six. Six big labels. We're in that situation right now with tech companies. Seriously, at the end of the 70s, there were 10 major labels. Now how many do we have? Yeah. And how many of our giant technology companies are about to roll up? So all I'm saying is if you look at the way art movements have been supportive, I don't think there's a shortage of creators. I think that there might be a lack of disruption in music technology, that not all people with their money situations can afford music, so they steal it or they want to steal it. What are we doing differently? How are we not supporting all economic classes so that they can consume art and artists can make money? I'm uh, sorry money sucks, but at yeah, but least $20,000 a year would be nice okay, for couple, an artist. A couple of things I don't, I, you know, I don't want sorry. to keep going down these tracks. <laughs> uh, first of all, the Globe Theatre was a technology of its time, right? So yes, technology, technology disrupts. It comes along all the time disrupting. And, then, and talking about leveling the playing field for access to music, it's currently free. So I don't know how we can go I below the zero it. bound on that. Right? I know I pay for music. I buy out vinyls, and I love getting the MP3 coupon with that, so I have choice. But um, you know, I just think technologies are disruptive, and the internet has been extremely disruptive. But just to get back on track, um, because we're, we've got 15 minutes left, so I encourage questions still. Uh, yeah. Um, my name's Chris Stacy. I'm a musician and a lawyer and an entrepreneur. And um, I, I think m more, more art was created back then because they weren't distracted by all this stuff and television and movies <laughs> and gadgets and <laughs> looking at their hands all the time and carrying stuff around. So I think that tells us there was more back then. The thing that I, I see through all this is this quote. I don't know who it, if it was Carnegie Mellon or some other guy, Herb Simon, that said, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the key for, for any of this tech is how to distinguish good art or whatever that means uh, to, to, a, to, a lar to a larger group of people um, with hundreds of thousands of millions of people putting whatever they create up on the internet. It's just a lot of noise. And uh, I think... To, to distinguish it, you, you have, some, have to some kind of relational thing as to why you would want to listen to this versus that, what moves you about this or versus that. And I think that's what's lacking. I don't have any answers. I just I think Curation. That, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it speaks to, it speaks to the fact that algorithms don't, don't get to know me. But I do have labels I trust. I do have um, writers I trust. There, there are people and there are filters, and those people have a continuing and important role. Algorithms make for great advertisements. Yes, uh, I'd like to, actually, that, that, that was a point I was making in my um, essay, um, uh, was the, the curating and filtering. So, you know, Pandora looked at issues that it wanted to solve. Um, FM radio sucks was one of them. And then looked in the wrong direction, because what was wrong with FM radio, they thought, was 
the lack of being able to interact with it and make your own playlists. But what was wrong with, with FM radio and still is wrong with FM radio is the fact that you know um, some of these companies like Clear Channel, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to get in trouble, um, but some companies um, are over the border in Mexico to get around the, you know, the, the government rules about programming and delivering of music, for instance. But what they did was, in the 80s when they all became conglomerates, they got rid of DJs, right? They got rid of DJs, unless that DJ was happy to just press go on the automated playlist that was just sent from HQ. So I mentioned in my article, um, you know, Wolfman Jack and John Peel and all these people who were your cultural music filters. And I, that's why I argue strongly um, against algorithms in music because there's no algorithm on earth that can be devised that will make every one of you in this room really happy about music choices, right? A lot of you might love my band Gang of Four, but if you put that in, in, in Pandora as a please play songs like Gang of Four, it turns into hell in about five <laughs> minutes. <laughs> and and I, I, I'm not ragging on Pandora here. I, you know, it's like they came up with an idea, but I, 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 I really think they didn't ask that question. What problem are we solving? Because I don't want to have a passive music listening of creating a channel that just plays all day while I'm working and then I realize when I take my headphones off, I don't know what the hell I heard for the last two hours. That's not interacting. I talked to these guys last night over some beers. Vinyl records is what I call slow music. I put the record on my turntable and I can work in my man cave there for hours. But I listen to the music, and you know why I listen to it? Because I know every track, and then I realize that's the last track on side one. I'm going to have to get up and turn it over. That's more interactive to me than anything that the web can deliver. That's <laughs> true. Dave, you, uh, you used to be able to sequence your records that way. So it was perp there are right. artists that would purposely you know, end yeah, on yeah. side one so well, that the act of turning it over was Don't get carried away, though. Art. Remember I wrote the end of the music recording album as the end of the world. Yeah. Right? You know, so. <laughs> also, we have questions. I mean, you, can, also, you uh, can still do that, right? There's you've no been waiting. You exactly. Still, you can still do that. Can, can I just a quick point on, you know, it, it comes up often, you know, this thing that we, we are living in a world of, of massive complexity and massive distractions, right? There's all these different options. But that's not like, you can't, you can't seriously go, like, go back in time 10 years and say that just because it was simpler than it was better. The what thing then was that it was like there was few people controlled all the channels. None of it was accessible. Now there's complexity for sure, but it's all like complexity that we can take control of ourselves. When we started SoundCloud, there was nothing out there that focused on building tools for the creators. There wasn't a thing. So sure, there's a thing today where as a creator you have 50 different tools that you could be using. But I have to say that that's a pretty good deal. I mean, that's better than having no tools at all and being forced to be dependent on an external organization or, or something to be able to get your stuff out there. Now you have the option. You don't have to choose between those 50 tools. You can hire somebody to do that for you, just like it was in the old days. Or you can take control of it yourself. You can choose which one of those tools you want to use. So we're in this tremendous time where the options have exploded. And curation, and curation not just of content, but curation of, of tools and technologies is going to be sort of a next, uh, next stage where we start filtering through all these things. But I think that you have to remember that when it feels like there's an enormous amount of complexity and distraction out there, you have to say that that's a better situation than not having any options at all. The music business was not simple before the internet. 
It was not simple. That's true. I heard someone clap. I know at least 10 people in this room who know that there was never anything simple about the music industry. This is a 344-page book, Hitman. You know what page the Gambino crime family appears on? 28. Yeah. Uh, Nothing simple. Hang on. You know who's the first, the first family to steal music was, was in the Gambinos. That's because there's nothing. But it wasn't accessible either. It was. It was very accessible. They stole trucks. They stole trucks. How was it accessible to a normal person? Hey, hey, well, we're running out of time. (laughs) I know I'm not being rude, but um, I just want to. I want to point out that there's nothing new in digital. (laughs) There is nothing new in digital. Uh, It's always the same as it's ever been. Uh, It's just a new. It's the new disruption. You know, the locomotive was pretty disruptive. Um, You know, we don't worry about that anymore. Um, but I, I'm not going to keep talking here. I, I want to take the question. The song Locomotive? Yeah, that was definitely disruptive. <laughs> Jethro um. Tull? <laughs> Jethro Tull used a flute. That was disruptive. Very disruptive. <laughs> um, my name's Casey Ray Hunter. I'm from Future of Music Coalition in D.C. I'm really excited about this panel. I was, this is the one that I was super looking forward to, not just because Dave's on it, but I, I got to read your piece, Dave, before, um, you know, before you guys got up here, so and hi Jesse, I get to see Jesse, Jesse again, which is great. Um, I think it's absolutely crucial to not lose sight of the musicians here, and that's why I'm really excited that Dave is moderating this, and also some of the things that Corey said really resonated. What I think might be happening, uh, and 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 we're probably not able to completely observe it correctly is collapsing the space between the technologist and the creator. That space is getting smaller and tighter. So we're probably going to see services that, you know, weren't dreamed up by a select committee of, you know, suits trying to figure out the absolute best GUI uh, to launch MySpace music. You know, we might see more things like SoundCloud. Um, I agree that there's so much noise and, and it's hard to find a signal but I have to uh, imagine that as long as we continue to listen to the musicians, we'll have a better sense of figuring out what's going to be most useful to them. And just a uh, you know organizational plug, on the revenue side of it, Future Music just uh, launched a survey that we encourage any of you uh, musicians in the room or folks who know musicians or do business with musicians, part of our Artist Revenue Streams project. It's called Making Money from Music. We're trying to actually incorporate so many of the uh, new business models and new revenue streams that were previously not available in that old complex version of the music industry, which agreed, you know, incredibly complex, and not, not include those as well, just to get a picture of, uh, you know, how this stuff is actually affecting artists' bottom lines. So, um, and I'm going to make one more plug just because Brian Zisk is the co-founder of my organization, I feel <laughs> that I could do this. Uh, we're having our conference um, in October 3 and 4 in D.C., some of this stuff, but from the other lens. I, I look at it like it's the flip side. That's why I'm so psyched to be here, because it's like, you know, the side that we don't encounter, which is like, you know, the folks are actually building the things that we use every day, versus the, you know, jerks in Washington who sit around and, like, decide how it's going to be for everybody. So if you come to D.C., you can see a lot of the musician perspective as it um, fits into the policy space. That's it. No questions. I just wanted to make a speech. <laughs> that was a public, Thanks, uh, a public service announcement. Yes. <laughs> That study Next is question, great. Please. If there's any artists in the room, that study is awesome. What's question. it called? The Artist Revenue Study? They're going to talk to you about how much money you've made over your career in your city. In your city. It's very important. Oh, uh, $10? <laughs> I live in Portland. <laughs> then you're doing really well. Congratulations. I, I am doing well. <laughs> if I could make one quick point on, on Casey's point about who is designing these features and who's, who are the ones doing this. Um, I will go on and on and on far too much about uh, the importance of open technologies and the open web. Mm -hmm. Um, We have an association with Mozilla, so I I sort of 
do it all the time. Uh, but I do think that that is going to be one of the major things that disrupts this room, the people here, is artists and musicians having open access to all these things. SoundCloud I've always seen as one of the foundational pieces out there. You have sort of feature startups and you have foundational startups. And SoundCloud, you can do anything with it. It's the APIs, it's the openness. And more and more and more as we create tools that allow you to use those open things and be truly open in the creation, the creation itself becomes um, more egalitarian in the, in the way that we're talking about creating music and anyone can do that. It, it's, we're not far off from the point where any artist can create the technology they need to do what they need. And, and enabling that and making that simple and making that at their fingertips, beyond just being the mission of the organization that I, I have, is, is the most important thing I think we can be doing in music right now and to a degree music tech. I think that gets back to what are the goals. I mean, because money is the goal of, of a lot of the stuff that, that fights the open web, you know, and fights to say, I want control of this API to a certain extent or I whatever. Think, you know, I think the money is more about where is the money going. For sure. So, no, for sure. If it's going in a tech company's pocket versus an artist's pocket. And, uh, well. But that, then that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If your goal um, is to have a tech company that makes money, then great. Sure. Okay, I think we have time for one last question, and then uh, I'll do some closing remarks. Did somebody have their hand up? Oh, yeah. Thank you. There's microphone. a microphone right there. Hello. Oh, my hello. Name, my name is Matt Nakatani. I'm a mu music producer, artist, and a student. Yeah. Uh, first off, I wanted to thank uh, Alex for uh, giving me a platform to release my music on. And uh, I think that that has been an amazing influence in my life. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, second off, I want to thank uh, Dave for uh, recognizing the uh, importance of the DJ um, because I haven't heard a lot about that at this conference. Um, the DJ as both a filter for content um, as well as a content provider and as well as a consumer. And um, I hear a lot about streaming at this, con at this uh, conference, but uh, some of the, the issues with that, as I've also already uh, heard from Dave, uh, including the algorithms for content filtering, uh, as well as the bitrate issues, um, seem to me that streaming can never really take the place of uh, downloads or physical CDs until the network speed issues and uh, are, are worked out so that uh, larger bitrate files can be streamed, as well as the fact that they, there need to be like live DJs choosing music. What are you guys' thoughts on this? Um, bitrate, DJs as content filters? I don't um, think, oh, oh. think audiophiles are really rare. I think that um, um, I don't care about bitrates. Um, Dave and I uh, were uh, at a bar in Portland on, um, on Friday night, um, the bunk bar, and we went, we went to see Centromatic. I don't know who anyone in the room Very knows good. Centromatic. Yeah, Distributed okay. I knew of them. I'd never seen them play live. Dave persuaded me that they're an awesome band live. We went down, and I'll keep this pretty quick. Um, it was a bonding experience on many levels, uh, particularly for Dave and I um, and other people in the room that, that I didn't expect in all to be the there. secrets. Some you of what? that was secret. I'm not, I'm not giving away any secrets. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, not, not, to, not to say I don't care about bit rates, but, but the live music experience cannot be replicated via uh, digital files and algorithms. It's mm -hmm. impossible. And I've always said this. If you go, you know, um, I, I remember being at a Radiohead concert in the Gorge um, about five years ago, and you could turn to anybody of, of those 20,000 people in, in, the, in the amphitheater 
and hug them if you want, right? Mm -hmm. I'd never met this person in my life, but you could just hug them and they would cry, you know? And it's just like, <laughs> this is awesome, you know? Uh, Tom's just doing his thing up there, this is amazing. And it was amazing. And, and you can't replicate that. Now, um, this is not to say that people can't keep trying, but just, let's just end on the money note. Um, I, I, I do want to bring it up because it, it, it's interesting because for those of you in, in music technology and music streaming service companies who might be in the room, fair enough, right? Uh, you're going to do what you're going to do and you're going to try and make it work and I, I'm sure that you're passionate about it and it's going to be awesome. Uh, Tim this morning gave a, you know, the opening talk uh, about Pandora and I have no problem with Pandora ultimately. Um, it, it's not my favorite of any of these services. I don't use many of them myself except for uh, research purposes. Um, but he seemed to end on an optimistic note that sort of belied uh, the talk he gave. Um, and the optimistic note, he says, he believes that businesses around these musicians will be successful. Just think about that. And thank you for coming. It was, um, I really enjoyed it. And thanks to all my panelists. Uh, they deserve way more credit than me. I just pulled this together. <laughs>